Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Heart and Hand, the Rangers podcast, the podcast that's pretty sure it enjoys International Week just as much as you do. This week on Heart and Hand, we turn it over to you, so if it's rubbish, it's your fault. Welcome to Heart and Hand, the Rangers podcast. My name is David Edgar, I am your host, and this week I am also the guest. And uh, you guys technically, I suppose, are the host, because uh, what we're doing, as uh, I promised a few a few months ago during International Week, was that I would do a sort of bonus pod uh, and answer questions that you guys had sent in, and if you liked it, then I would try and do it again a couple of times a season when we have this utter fuckery that is the two-week, two-week international break and you did like it uh, or well enough of you did anyway to annoy me into doing this one so here we are now I had asked for questions last week and you guys certainly delivered so a lot more than I was expecting and when I put them all down and in, in, uh, into a list and compared them all together it ran to uh, seven sides of A4 and frankly I'm not doing that so I've selected the best ones and certainly, you know, the the, the first ones. Uh, so if you didn't get your question asked, then uh, I'm sure we'll be doing this again sometime in the future. So uh, just just hold on to it. So before we start, apologies for any of the ums and ahs. It's a bit difficult when you're trying to pace yourself, talking to yourself, and you don't have someone to, to bounce it off. So I apologise for that in advance. Bear with me and uh, we'll... we'll We'll get through this. Let's just—it's like International Week. If we just—if we just hold hands, we'll we'll get through this. Before we start, I'd just like to thank you all out there for—I uh, mentioned on a couple of weeks ago that my my little dog Arthur had passed away, and you were also very kind. It, it was lovely. Uh, thank you very much for that. Just to let you know that hey, he has—he's uh, missed every day, obviously, but the house was a wee bit too empty, so we got a little puppy, uh, a little brindle staffy puppy called Albert or Bert 
for for sure. And the only problem seems to be that instead of being sent a dog, they appear to have given me a baby Velociraptor. And to be honest with you, although he's lovely and tiny and cute, I've been bitten more times than the guy in the Lego suit standing outside the Buchanan Street store when Scott Brown's walked by. So I might actually ramble on for a bit longer than normal just, just to let uh, to let my wife uh, dog sit him for the next uh, couple of hours and uh, he can chew on her for a while uh, rather than rather than me. It's nice to know that my skin... What, 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 for what it was there was was tasty and there's there's not a lot of it left now anyway enough and, and thank you very much for that guys so let's get started uh for anyone who's, who's just tuned into this probably not the best one to start with it's probably one more for the hardcore but uh what we had done or what i'd done in the past was ask people to send in questions could be related to anything rangers pod my time with the ranger supporters trust Rangers in general, anything at all that, that you wanted to know about and I would do my best to answer it. So we have a selection here, all joking aside, I picked out from the seven pages worth of questions and uh, I'll whiz through as many of them as I can. First up is Craig R. Morton. I like the, the initial, that shows a man of uh, a man of guile and taste. He said, uh, was there any heat between RFC board members, backroom staff that you knew of during your time with the RST? That, that, yeah, I mean, there was disagreement, certainly, between... When I was there, you have to remember, it, it was Murray, um, and first of all, it was Alex McLeish, then briefly Paul Gwen, then Walter Smith, uh, in the time that I was there. So in terms of, you know, were there ever times that Walter or uh, Big Ek were unhappy with the board then absolutely but in the end it would be very minor because the relationship was entirely about manager and David Murray you know although you could say the board it was very much a, a sort of three-man decision-making team which was Bain, Martin Bain, the, the chief exec, David Murray and whoever the manager was so you could maybe you would occasionally hear of you know an argument flaring up between Maybe a, a director and the manager. A director had said something and it had got back. You know, a director had maybe said something to someone in the media and it had got back to them. But it was nothing major. Were there ever really any significant fights between them? No. And it might sound, it might sound odd, given that you know the Gwen left and and McLeish was was fired. But generally speaking, I think that they all had a good they had a good relationship, and that that was one of the reasons why it was so hard to get people to speak out against Murray during that period and after it is that everyone who worked for him uh, seemed, uh, there was this code of omerta about criticising him in any way. So there were run-of-the-mill things, but there was never there was never anything anything huge. Um, I think, you know, obviously, all managers would, would like a bit more money. They, I think, at, in fact, I know for a fact that with at least two of the three managers, they would have preferred if sometimes the chairman was a little less visible in the media. I think is a polite way to put it. Uh, he he wasn't maybe always cognizant of their PR wishes. Let's put it that way. But uh, overall, uh, I think because Rangers was really run from the top down, and it was one man's fiefdom. Uh, then no, the manager knew what the line of communication was. 
it was the decision would be taken by Murray and Martin Bain would be there to enact it. And that was how it worked for years. And, you know, there was certainly success. And there, was, there was pluses to it. The negatives were the fact that when you've got a club run from the top down by one man, if he makes any errors, if there's no one to counsel him and to say, you've made a big error there and we're going we're gonna to have to change course. So that didn't happen. Alex Douglas. That's a really good name, that. Alex Douglas. I hope when he gets back, his wife shouts, it's Alex Douglas home. See what I did there? That was a bit primary ministerial banter for you there. Uh, who was the most genuine Rangers or ex-Rangers player you met during your time with the Trust? Uh, oh, that's a good one. Um, ex-player. Uh, a lot of them were, were very nice people. Um, Colin Steen, Derek Parlane, etc. But Sandy Jarden was the one I had most dealings with. And he was an absolute gentleman. He was just really honest and direct and open and kind you know he didn't have to be to he was sandy jarden and you know we were fans uh and he could have gave it the big eye there were people who worked at rangers who had never kicked a ball for rangers or done a quarter of what sandy jarden had done for rangers who treated fans like something that they wiped from their shoes and he never did uh and i think that that was so telling to me and i that was, I think, what maybe made us more combative with those other employees, that it was sort of like, well, wait a minute, a legend behaves that way, and who the fuck are you? <laughs> and, you know, you because you've got a tie on, you suddenly think you're, you suddenly think that you're, you're top of the tree. So, yeah, Sandy Jarden was, was a wonderful man. At the time that I was there, Stephen Davis, we had some dealings with, was a very, very nice bloke, um... Neil Alexander, I remember, um, meeting a few times to tell up some stuff, and again he was he was very nice. and Nacho Novo. I think a lot of people um, have had dealings with Nacho over the over the last few years, and uh, in terms of genuine, I mean he is a genuine Rangers man, and uh, there's so many great Nacho stories, and uh, one of mine uh, was a, a friend of mine, and we met him coming out of Ibrox one day. And, just, you know, oh, you're going to score on Saturday, or that, you know, the usual kind of things that you do when you're in your, you know, I was in my 20s, he was in his 40s, but, you know, you turn into simpering children when oh, there's a footballer, you know, it, it is the equivalent of, like, a teenage girl meeting a member of One Direction, you're sort of, you're going to score on Saturday, you know, not that a teenage girl should be saying that to a member of One Direction, incidentally, but you get my point, but we're, we're doing that, and uh, he's like, yeah, you know, blah, blah, and for, like, you know, usual kind of thing can, can you sign this or that sign this for, for my nephew his name's David yeah and uh, my mate said to him he's like you know Nacho you seem to hate Celtic almost as much as we do and he said do you know what a, a look came over his face it was like a cloud and his, his eyebrows sort of came together and knitted in the middle he said do you know, I, I don't know what it is he goes but I fucking hate them he said I hate everything about them for the minute I've come to this country even when I was at Dundee I hate their stupid strip I hate their stupid stadium I fucking hate them I thought you'll do it for me so <laughs> oh I'm not talking out of there but that was at the time I'm sure he's mellowed ever since uh, Doug Country uh, and again, another great name, because if, and I'm not suggesting this for a minute, but if someone was to anally penetrate Doug Country, they could sing, I'm in Doug Country, which I think would be quite good. Um, do you think things would have turned out differently had Donald Finlay not had to resign as Rangers vice chairman? Oh, that's a good one. Um, 
I don't know if they would have turned it differently, but it would have certainly slowed down the march in terms of the media because, and I know this for a fact because I've heard it um, said to me by very senior, at the time they were reporters, now they're they're editors and columnists and whatnot, uh, at, at the Red Tops, that what that was to them and to their editors more precisely was a, a red flag, uh, sorry, a white flag. Um, it was Rangers saying, on you go, um, we, won't, we won't fight any of this kind of stuff. And it became open season. Had Findlay not resigned, then I think that a battle would have ensued and you don't know who would have won that battle. But that was although we didn't know it at the time, the end of that war without without shots being fired from one side because basically that was part of Murray's um, his fear of getting involved in anything to do with with that sort of with that sort of press criticism. And I think had Findlay fought his corner or had come out, who knows, you know, the, the society changed and things that were acceptable in the 90s, you know, aren't acceptable now. So you never know. But I do know that people who you would term enemies of ours saw that and saw the reaction to that and went, they're, fair, they're game for anything. There's nothing that we can't do to them. And the rule was, I've, I've spoken about this before, there was this sort of almost unwritten pact between the media and Murray which was if the business pages didn't write about his businesses and didn't go after him personally they could write what the, they liked about Rangers and about Rangers fans in particular and I think that that incident it's certainly that the sharks smelled blood in the water and a feeding frenzy ensued and he was just and he'd already said when it when it really got bad you know, he he'd already given up. You know, he he'd already um, sounded the retreat long ago, and there was there was no coming back from it. Uh, Graham Smith, what was Murray's reaction around John McClellan's chairmanship, and was Murray or board responsible for the eighty five million pound debt? Murray's chairmanship, uh, uh, Murray's reaction to McClellan's chairmanship. Uh, Murray's chairmanship was McClellan's chairmanship. You know, John, John McClellan was. He was kind of like one of these old duffers that was quite happy so long as you know he he got a cup of tea and a and a free fondant fancy brought to him and people called him Mister McClellan. You know he he didn't do anything. You know he wasn't. Uh, he, he was sort of like a a kind of almost like a, a one of those stuffed toys that that you you see on University Challenge. That the the team bring he he didn't actually do anything, um he he was just put in so Murray could step away from the firing line for two years and as for the debt the debt was entirely down to David Murray one hundred percent down to David Murray there was no such thing as a board it was one hundred percent David Murray he made every decision that led us to that point he signed every check that led us to that point and uh. I'll say this now to, to people who might be listening with the old, uh, you weren't complaining when he spent it, defence. No, I wasn't. And as I've said a thousand times before, and 
I think it bears repeating. That argument is like if you buy a lot of stuff for your kids uh, on a credit card that you can't really afford and on Christmas Day give them it and enjoy the happy reaction and then a month later when you have to take it off them as the bailiffs come round, you say, well, you weren't complaining on Christmas Day. You have a duty when you're the chairman to know this is not good for the club. So when you're about to post losses for the year 2000, for example, don't, uh, 37 million in losses for that year, don't write a cheque for £12 million for a striker just because you can. Uh, there was no forward thinking. And like, uh, I think, a, a teenager with a first credit card, he just didn't look at it because he knew that the debt was scary. So it just kept mounting up, mounting up. And it would have gone further had the bank not said, you need to do something about this. This this is it now. Um, so, no, the one man bears responsibility for that. And while it would be convenient for for him to say that, uh, well, to be fair, I've never heard him say this, but it, it was him. He did it. And uh, the debt was entirely 100% down to David Murray. And uh, that's pretty much all there is to it. But McClellan, no, McClellan was, uh, was, was nothing. He was, you know, as I say, you could have put in a, a kind of, a Paddington Bear toy and it would have done effectively the, the same job uh, Hurty what was the scariest or angriest you've seen in person or heard about Walter Smith uh, well I mean we've, you've seen the, the Chuck Young video and uh, if any of you have ever seen Walter on a press conference where he was in a bad mood he could be like that um I think the scariest I ever saw him was at a, a football writer's dinner where a couple of weeks earlier, you might remember, we'd beaten uh, Dundee United 2-0. I think Nacho scored both. It was on the way to, to Manchester. Though obviously not on the road to Manchester, but you get my point. And I can't remember, but Dundee United had a couple of decisions against them. I think they were fairly egregious. But Levine being the kind of bespectral Millhouse looking like twat that he is uh, immediately decided that rather than look at his own failings he would start uh, beating the, the conspiracy drum and of course it was you know Rangers get all the decisions we never get anything it's this country blah 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 and when Walter got up on the stage he was he was just as he was being introduced he was just staring at Levine and for the first sort of five to seven minutes just kept alluding to him, just kept niggling, and then fucking exploded. And to the point where you just saw Levine sitting there. First he tried to smirk, but then that just went, and then just his face went white. And I thought, holy fuck, he's going to kill him. And I think the whole room did. So after it, uh, I saw Levine, what looked like, trying to go up and apologise to him, but I don't think Walter was, was wearing it. So uh, that was the scariest I personally had, had ever seen him. Uh, and also from Hurty, are you tempted to take a role in Club 1872? No. Um, private Eye, uh, with the goings-on at Club 1872, do you see any similarities, uh, ways it can be saved? And uh, we've actually had uh, another, he also, um, another question on that, he also said, uh, I asked before about the 2008 exodus from the trust and other infighting that could have cost the RST support. Do you think that this is echoed in, in current events? And that was also asked by Andrew McNiven. Um, well, I don't know what's happening inside Club 1872, so it would all be 
speculation. What I know that when I was there is that people have egos and I know that because I have got a fucking massive one uh, and other people do. And the way it is with a committee in any walk of life is that there are jobs which are unglamorous and jobs which are more glamorous. And people have to be prepared to do different ones. And where there can be an issue is that if someone is getting all the attention, which is what happened with me, there were others who felt, well, actually, I'm doing more. Yeah, I'm working on this or that or whatever. And he's the one that's that's getting to, you know, to, to get all the credit for it. Um which was was true, but the other side of that was I was also the one who got all the abuse. Uh, and when things hit the hit the fan, it was it was my face in the final line. But yeah, maybe not. Maybe we we allowed, or I allowed, or all of us allowed, maybe me to become too synonymous with the the name the RST, and it would possibly have been better to to sort of spread that. But I, I find it very sad what's happened at Club eighteen seventy two. It's just I understand. It can happen because there's going to be disagreements. And I'll let you into a little secret. When I thought the trust functioned at its best and in terms of relationships, achievements, um, members joining, all that sort of stuff, it was effectively because three of us basically just sort of took control and did what we wanted. Um, and that was what pissed off the other members. And looking back on these, they were right. But I'm not sure a committee system is the most dynamic. There are very few successful multinational corporations that aren't run by uh, by individuals or a very, very small coterie of people. I don't think having lots and lots of decision makers is a good idea because you also have the situation where everybody feels they've got to contribute something. So if an idea comes across the table, Rather than just let it go past, you'll always get the people who want to debate it and change it. And you end up with this thing, rather than, I always put it, something that would go through the the decision-making process that the trust came out almost like um, uh, the end of a game of Jenga, when it was this thing that was balancing, but it was precarious with bits tacked onto it at the side. And I think it's better if you just make a decision, go ahead with it, and if it fails you take the responsibility for it. And that's why I've always felt with Club uh, 1872 or any supporters group that I think that people get it in their heads that the best way to do it is that you you do everything that the members want. You can't. It's not possible. If you've got 10,000 members, you're going to have 10,000 different opinions. And everybody wants you to do exactly what they think. They don't want you to deviate at all. So you can't do that. What you need to do is almost what we do with government, which is you vote people in with a structure, with a leader and a decision-making, all that sort of thing, and you vote someone in, they do it for a nominated period, and if you're unhappy at the end of it, you get rid of them. And that, to me, would be the best way to go. Or you could have a fixed term, sort of like you do with uh, you do with American presidents, where you could just say it's like, right, you've got three years, and at the end of it, you're gone regardless. Because then you'll do what you think is right, rather than what you... rather than what might be popular. So, yeah, I mean, I can understand. I know what it's like. I know I ruffled feathers. I was... Back in those days, I was pretty hard to deal with. Um... 
back then, I mean, people say that to me now, you know, David, you think you're God and, and they're right, but back then I knew I was, uh, so I was even worse and I was very difficult to deal with. And I also had the conduit to the media, so it was frustrating for other people that if I wanted to do something, I would just announce it. And that kind of had to be done as a fait accompli. And I knew that, and I took advantage of that, and I think it worked out well, because I think the decisions we took were right. Um, and it won't come as any surprise to anyone, I'm not naming names, but, you know, it wasn't just me doing it. I would always speak to Mark, I'd always speak to Stephen Smith and bounce ideas off them because, you know, I respect them. They're different, they think differently to me. You know, Mark, of course, is Mussolini and uh, Stephen is a member of the Red Brigade. So you, you always get those different perspectives on how things are going to be received. And But, yeah, I, I would say that if you are going to have a fans organisation, its leadership should be small, uh, they should have a, a term where they are allowed to do what they decide is best and then at the end of it, the fact, because if you're doing it that you have to represent the fans every whim, there are too many fans, they care too much, they, uh, they will want you to act on things that aren't practical and they will well-meaningly give you contradictory positions and you'll have to choose between that and I don't think that that's possible. I think you're better to just have an agenda to say, this is why we're here, this is what we're going to achieve, and this is my plan to do it. Do you want to let me go in and act it? And if they let you go in and act it, great. If you succeed, you can get the rewards for that. If you fail, you take the blame for it. And that's cool. That's how it should be. Um, there should be accountability. So I hope Club 1872 get it sorted out. Um, I don't know a lot of the individuals involved very well. I know Joanne Persson very well, and she's fantastic. And Joanne is Rangers to the core. And put it like this, if I was starting an organisation tomorrow, she would actually be the first call, genuinely. Hardest working person I've ever met. Uh, did more for the RST than uh, me and Mark and Stephen and the guys who resigned put together. So that's, that's all I know. I don't know the rest of the people very well, and it wouldn't be fair to comment. Uh, I'm going to take. I'm just going to take a, a break. Usually, Scott's wittering on at this point, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to pause for for some refreshment. That's when you you crack that open. It sounds cool. I've heard the other podcasts they crack it open and they go ah, it's Miller time. Um, with me, I crack it open and it's ah, it's bars limeade time, which isn't quite as glamorous. So, but you know, life well lived and all that. Um, next question comes from Rich T Biscuit. Um, during your time in the RST, in your opinion, was a media bias towards Rangers or balance between the old fun? Towards Rangers? Jesus, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, um, I can only go on the time that I was there, but towards Rangers? Holy shit, no. Um, they fucking hated us. Um... And that, that was the time, I think, that most viciously around about 2003, 2008, that was maybe longer, maybe 2000, nah, I'd say 2003, 2008, that was when they really went for it. And, I mean, you, you had the issue with the Billy Boy song, which was, never forget that, that this was a campaign put together in front of UEFA by a Scottish MP, a Scottish press member, and a Celtic supporting uh, and a bunch of Celtic supporters. I mean that, that they colluded together to do that to get a football club in trouble. How fucking pathetic is that? Imagine that was your life. So no, no, the media at the time was you, you got bears, but they knew they had to keep their heads down. There was a purge in editorial rooms, and I, I do think, by the way, that 
because I see a lot of parallels now between the way that we are written about kind of joke club and everybody always trying to point you know oh there's problems and this is wrong and that's wrong and it reminds me genuinely of the way we were written about in the uh, the way Celtic were written about in the the early nineties and then well in the nineties in general and the way Rangers are written about is the way Celtic are written about and that's because at the time Murray controlled the media and now Lawwell does and so what you used to get were a load of of articles about uh, Celtic that painted them in a very bad light which were often kind of deserved, certainly under the, the first half of that decade under the Kellys. And I've noticed that the last few years that once you, you become uh, you become viewed through that prism of that club's a mess, that club's a disaster, that's how you're reported on. And once you're viewed through that prism of God, sleek, shining, everything they do is great. Also, you know, we need to do what the guy at the top tells us, they'll cut our nuts off. That was what Murray was like then, that's what Lawwell's like now. What changed was, as I say, round about the turn of the century, there was a kind of whole change across uh, the newspapers, a lot of editorial changes. And um, one respected archaic, uh, or archaic now, but very respected old voice of football. He was a, a writer and a commentator. Uh, I said to him one time, why did you leave the Herald? He said, I didn't survive the cull. And that was basically, as we were saying, that people with his sort of ideas were, were gone to be replaced by people who were more aggressive and who in the main hated Rangers. Um, and to be fair, that's the way it's been since. What changed uh, What changed that was the fact that, that Murray became such an easy target and then, of course, Rangers went into the, the the state that we went into. What was interesting, though, is that the difference between when Celtic were in trouble, we laughed and watched our team. When Rangers were in trouble, there was an element of the Celtic supporter who went out of their way to make it worse and to you know cause more and more ructions, cause more and more trouble, and we all know about it. And I think it's a pathetic way to live your life. And I think that there is a group now, I think there should be a third group that you've got Rangers fans, Celtic fans, and we should have a third group called Rangers haters, because not Celtic fans, they never talk about Celtic, they've got no interest in Celtic, they entirely fixate on Rangers, and uh, like I say, if you're one of these people who, you know, your Twitter handles, yeah, your Twitter handles something to do with Rangers, uh, like Sevco 5088 or Sevco dead and all that, and you've, your, your Avi's a picture of Craig White, and that's all over your, your Facebook just fucking die, right? Because you are not a valuable member of the human race and there is no point to you as a person and you shouldn't be allowed to breed. Uh, and it frightens me that hateful people like you are allowed internet access when, frankly, you shouldn't even be allowed fucking cutlery. So, uh, yeah, a bit of an aside. Um... Stevie True Blue asks, uh, what do you think of this current board and Mr King and will they or can they provide the necessary backing to Pedro? Hmm. I think that the current board and Mr King deserve credit. Dave King, I fucking hate all that and be a Mr King. Sorry, that's another another thing, you know. Mr King, Mr Warburton, Mr Murray. No, right? Uh, get off your knees. Um... We are, and it's strange for a club who's got a Protestant uh, a, a history running through it, 
we can be so supplicant, you know, we can be so down and, and on our knees in front of guys in the club tie and a club suit, can't we? And we're like, oh, the man in the big house, he'll see us, right? You know, oh, jeez, that really, really annoys me. It's uh, it's your club, right? Our club. And don't ever be in awe of these people. Be very respectful, of course. It's, you know, just polite, it's good manners. But for fuck's sake, you know, it's, it's your club. Um, and don't ever be so deferential because that was what allowed us to to get to the position that we were in it's what allowed Murray to run unchecked it's what allowed Green when he came in to just be un, no questions asked until he, it was too late it's allowed White it was all that because we just instantly want the father figure we just want daddy will protect us and then we don't have to think for ourselves no we do we have to think for ourselves and we have to question. And actually, to go further back to, you know, with that, with that Club 1872 thing, in my opinion, a supporters association, a supporters forum, should be the conscience of the club. And even if the club's doing well, you should always be going, aha, that's great, what's next? That's your job, you know, that that's kind of what you're... You're not there to be an adjutant of the club. You're not there to be a, a another division or another asset at the club. You're there to poke and prod and say, come on, you know, what are you doing about this? Yeah, that's brilliant. You've got that fixed. Next. That's what you're there to do, you know, because you're there to make us strive. You're there to help us be the club that we want to be. Um, and it's human nature in any business. Any business are going to say, after a success, they're, they're, they're going to want to bask in it where, you know... it. it the successful ones are where somebody goes, that's great, that's done, on to the next one. And that should be your job as a if you want to be part of a fans group or whatever you want to call it. So anyway, um, what do I think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm grateful for what they did. I've said that many times. I think they've had a very bad year. Um, I find some of Dave King's proclamations to be at times a little bit confusing and sometimes at odds with each other. Um, but time is in the telling. I, I'll be forever great. No matter what happens, I'll be forever grateful for, uh, to them for despiving us. Um, and in terms of necessary backing, so long as they back them with what they can and it's the most that they can and it doesn't endanger the club, I'll be happy. That's that's all I ask for them. I'm 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 not asking for fifty million pounds in the summer. Um, just make a decent amount, and if not, explain to us why we can't. Um, and just say, but look, we're running a financial even keel. It means we're skint at the moment. That's okay. That's cool. Um, but don't make statements that make people think you're going to do something and then don't. I don't. Uh, I don't think that that's the best way forward for for the club. Stufa, what was your proudest achievement and the moment that makes you cringe most from your time with the RST? Jesus, oh, we had a long time with that one. Um, we'll start with the, the the proudest achievement one. Um, I think that it was pushing through the fan representation and fan share. It was called uh, Jersey, uh, and I don't want to take all the credit for it. I do want to take all the credit for it, but I can't because a lot of it was done by guys like Malcolm McNevin that did all the legal stuff with it. Uh, again, Joanne Persville, they worked so hard on it. And they deserve the credit for it. But to be involved in going out and to sell it to people is an idea to say, look, we can involve, you know. And I think we kicked we kicked it off 
where we said to people, well, look, we are now wanting to become an actual force. We we don't want to just sit in the sidelines and carp. We want to you know raise money and put it into the club and and do all that good stuff. And I think that that's continued on, and and that's that's vitally important because you've we've got to own a share of the club. We've got to own enough to ever stop us being put into the position that we got put into uh, in the last couple of in the last couple of years. So that for me was was the trust's biggest achievement in terms of an actual thing that you could physically point to. I think that I was very proud of the fact that I personally and alongside Mark and, and Stephen and we went out and we fought a lot of bad press at a time when it was a real feeding frenzy about Rangers supporters. Like I remember um, the the Billy Boys song was banned, of course, and Rangers fans instantly stopped singing it. You know, not didn't want to, but instantly stopped singing it. And then... Four weeks later, it came out. Uh, it, it was it was whipped out in an away game. I think it was against Inverness, and it was front page news, genuine front page news. And I thought, ah, nah, nah, you don't, you have no interest at all in fighting sectarianism, because that's not anyone who's interested in fighting sectarianism. A realizes that it's much bigger than a single song at a football match and that a football club can only ever be a symptom it can't be no matter what people would like to tell you it cannot be the cause of a social problem it's such a complex thing um, sectarianism and a lot of it comes from education it comes from attitude it comes from social standing it comes from poverty it's a lot easier to just say not Rangers because if you're a politician and you look at it and you go, God, how are we going to deal with inequality? How are we going to deal with fallen education standards? God, how are we going to deal about attitudes and diet and how people are eating and you know life expectancy in certain areas? And it's a lot easier to go, Rangers are a bunch of bigoted hun bastards, aren't they? And that's what they do. And you can see it with items like that because that's not a case. Anyone who says, right, we want to get rid of this song because they think it's offensive, when it goes, they say, you know what? Over the piece, it's gone. It's the occasional things, but that's fine. We'll work on that. Well done. They didn't do that. They went instantly. Ha! It's back. We told you, hun bastards. And that, I think, became almost the the discourse for that period. And there weren't many people out there going, no, no, this is not who we are. This is... We will not allow you to paint us into this little caricature corner that you've decided for is because it was never a debate that was what used to make me laugh when papers would talk about the sectarian debate it was a decision which was you're a bunch of bigoted hun bastards and we're going to sit over here and punish you and blame you for stuff and if ever one of us was to put our hands up and say actually somebody would be along to shout at us and call us a bigot and that would be be what happened and it just didn't reflect my experience and the people I knew. And I thought, you know, this isn't this isn't right. You know, that this is just real agenda-led hatred being parsed as some sort of moral crusade by socially inept, horrible, backward, bigoted people. And they were turning their own hatred 
towards this group of people that they didn't know based on the fact that we went to watch a football team on a Saturday. And anyone who lived in Glasgow will know what this means. You know, you're at a party, you're a Rangers fan, oh, you're a bigot then, you know, that sort of thing. And that was the identification. And we went out and we fought that perception. Did we always do it right? No. You ask what makes me cringe most? I think, you know, some of the appearances I did could be, you know, a little bit ranty at times. Uh, I, like I say, I, I was pretty full of myself and I was brilliant at delivering a killer line, which is great, but at the time, but then afterwards when, you know, the shit comes pouring in uh, and comes pouring into your your personal life as well, then you begin to think, you know, as clever as that line was, maybe, maybe it would have been better not doing it. But I wasn't bright enough, I didn't know any different. You know, if, if something came to mind, just boom, or it came. I had no filter. And some of the things I was arguing for, I just fundamentally don't believe now. Because I was in my 20s and I was very defensive. And again, that goes back to what I was just ranting about, that if, if it had been a genuine debate and we hadn't had to be so defensive... And you had you didn't have to fight for absolutely everything. If they'd just said, you know, we want to end sectarianism, what can we do about it? And we'd went, well, these are our ideals. And they'd say, well, okay, but, you know, we think you need to do this. You'd maybe have looked at it and go, okay, you're right, we do need to do that, right? But they weren't interested in that. Um, so when they came to us, it was more a case of, you know, our back was up about everything. And I'm sure people... Even Rangers fans, I think I know, even Rangers fans were like, oh, God, this dick again on the radio, not on the telly. And, but that was what it was. It was nobody else was doing it. Nobody else was allowed to do it. And to be a bit arrogant, I knew the only way to be allowed a voice was to make that voice interesting. And occasionally that meant saying things that would be good copy, that would be good radio or good TV, good publicity, whatever. Um... And that meant we kept getting invited back and that meant we were able to have a voice at the time when otherwise they just wouldn't have given us one. You know, the the running joke at the time was we're, we're going to have a debate on sectarianism in Scotland and, you know, here representing the sides will be Neil Lennon, Bishop Conte and Graham Spears. And that was... We had to try and force our way onto that panel and if we were just going to turn up and be meek they weren't going to have his back because there was no point. So I had to go on and be quite aggressive. But at times, your people play me a clip back and something, oh, Jesus, really did I say that? And what I would say, though, is I'm not massive on regrets because I can't change it. You know, there's no point lying there going, I've only had done this, I've only had done that. There are things that I did that were wrong and I'm sorry for and things that I would apologise for, but I don't go over them in my mind and go, if only, because it's done, it's gone. So if I made a mistake, I like to think I can hold my hand up to it and say, yep, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that. And listen, I know in the pod I come across... uh, (laughs) I come across, he said, trying to to make himself sound better as being quite arrogant and, and you know I can be but I think that I, I am honest enough to be able to say I fucked that up I, I made an error there and I made plenty during my time at the RST and again that's why I, I'd be very reluctant to criticise Club 1872 because I don't really know what's going on there and I know how hard a job it is um, there's no playbook nobody comes along on your first day and says right go and read you know this is the manual go and read it 
doesn't work like that. So, yeah, you, you make mistakes. A lot of things made me cringe. A lot of things made me proud. Ah, bars line made. Okay, Johnny M, 1872. Favourite Rangers book and favourite general football book. Can't be your own, but good chance to plug all the same. No, I, I think that's fair, Johnny M. I don't think that I should plug... Uh, 21st Century Blues, uh, Being a Bear in the Modern World by David Edgar, which is available on, on Amazon Kindle. I, I don't think I should should plug that um, for only three ninety nine. dollars uh, Even though it's been called by, by many commentators one of the best books ever written, in fact, by, uh, Professor Graham Walker of Belfast Queen's University said that uh, a sane, funny, refreshing uh, and wonderful tale of being a Rangers supporter. So, I mean, but if you were to decide that you wanted to go and read that, I would say it's probably the best Scottish book since Train Spotting. Um, so if you did, I wouldn't stop you. But my favourite Rangers book, favourite general football book, my favourite Rangers book would probably be The Gallant Pioneers because I didn't know a lot about that period. I didn't know as much as I should have. And isn't that bizarre? Isn't that bizarre that we, you know, we love this thing so much and we didn't know about its history? Um, I know how all the bands I love formed. So I really should have known about that, but I didn't. And I would just massively recommend it. If you haven't done the Gallant Pioneers tour, do it. It's fantastic. And the the guys behind that deserve so much, so much praise. Um, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful day. And if you've done it before, do it again, because you can't, you can't learn enough about heritage. Apart from that, I also enjoyed, uh, I think, Tom Miller's, um, recent book was a very good read. Enjoyed that. And Nacho Novo's, again, uh, much more love for me. Nacho's coming out today, but I, I think Nacho's, Nacho's uh, autobiographies was a good read. And the uh, history of Rangers that Ronnie Esplin wrote in about 2009, I think it came out. Uh, I think that it's, or 2010, it might have been. Um, it's obviously a bit dated now. A couple of things have happened since then. But it's very good. Um, I'm in it, which helps. Um, but I would definitely recommend it. Um, and yeah, a general football book. Uh, Calcio by I Can't Remember the Guy's Name is a great read that's about the history of Italian football. Just Calcio book into, into Amazon and, and it'll pop up. Um, it's a fantastic read. Um the Nottingham Forest book, kind of more later ones, I believe, Miracles by Danny Taylor, was was a really good was a really good read. And then I suppose it's not a football book, but it is. Um, if you love and you should the book The Damned United by David Peace, which is one of my favourite novels, and is actually, trust me, speaking from experience, one of the best books about uh, the repetitive nature of addiction you'll ever read. You should read that, and then you should read the book We Are the Damned United, which is about that United team, and gives you the sort of other side of it. So uh, I'm fascinated by Brian Clough. I mean, who wouldn't be? Um, Jonathan uh, Wilson's done a book about him as well. Nobody ever says thank you, and I would recommend that if, if you if you're into Cloughy. Um, there's also a good book about England teams by Brian Glanville. He's a bit of an arse, but you listen to this podcast, clearly it doesn't put you off. Uh, just knowing that and it's about the last 60 years of the England team or something like that it's it's a really good read uh, if you're remotely interested in that uh, and that sort of thing and 
I remember, see, I've got this weird, uh, if you've ever seen the, the show The Big Bang Theory, I'm basically Sheldon. Scott thinks the character and my wife thinks the character was moulded on me. And one of the things is this man, I've got a man, if I read a book, I remember everything about it. It's, it's quite bizarre. Um, so I remember these football books from the 80s. And I remember reading Ron Atkinson's book called United to Win when he was a manager of Man United just before he got sacked in the last line it's called United to win because it's like the last line is I now believe the time was right for United to win he was wrong because he was sacked the following season but you should read it about how different I don't know if it's, if it's not still in print but you can get a, a copy of it because it's quite bizarre that there's stuff in it now that's just out and out racist and you know would, would be banned and I was surprised it didn't come out during the whole the whole sort of like Farago about the Marcel Desailly comments a few years ago. So that's one to check it. And another one from back then that I know you can get in Amazon because I bought it is uh, Peter Reed's diary, um, Everton Winter Mexican Summer, which is about 85 86 season with Everton and then the, the 1986 World Cup. And it's so interesting now because it's like he's been offered a new contract by Everton and he's going, I'm at the stage of my career where it's not really worth it to me to move somewhere for an extra 50 quid a week but, and you're like, Jesus Christ I mean, this was a guy who was going to the World Cup with England and his wage, I think at the time, was like 800 quid a week, which is obviously great, but you know, compared to now but there's some brilliant stories in it, including the time that Andy Gray uh, was on Question of Sport and he was asked to name the stadium and he went, Stamford Bridge no, no, QPR and it turned out to be Ibrox and of course he got slaughtered in the Everton dressing room and they said the next day a pic, uh, something arrived for him in the, uh, through the mail and it was a photograph uh, of Ibrox with the words, this is Ibrox written on it, signed Derek Johnston. So uh, kind of stories that you don't get in, in modern football books. Uh, Dingwald, Dad Dingwald, God I hope. No, that would like to be too horrible to contemplate. Um, for the special live pod, what designer are you going to wear? It will be the Tommy Hilfiger or Paul Smith, depending if I go formal or casual. So that helps, but it's pretty much all I wear, except in the house where all I wear is jammies. So but outside, that's generally my labels of choice. Um, Stufa. Do you think meaningful fan ownership is a reality at RFC or is the support simply too fragmented for it to be achieved? Again, I think it's just something you've got to go for. I think if you poll all the fans and get them to debate about it, then yeah, nothing will ever get done. Again, you've just got to have somebody who says, this is what we should go for and go for it and then go out and sell it to people. Um, I think that there is still a legacy of the, the, the money years, which is that people are waiting for a sugar daddy to come along and just give us money. And it'll maybe take a period of barren years when they realise that isn't going to happen before they'll start to say, well, okay, maybe maybe this is the route that we need to go. I personally think we need to have at least, you know, 20% of our club. I'd like us to own the stadium. I think that that would, would be a huge protection in the future against any, any kind of corporate raiders. And that would be a name of mine. But... Is the support simply too fragmented for it? You know, that's the thing at Rangers. We've got, you know, 50,000 CEOs <laughs> every week and that'll never change. But if you avoid getting bogged down in the arguments because you'll never get out of that, if you just say, well, this is what we think and this is what we're going for, you can come along with us or not. 
if you can sell it to enough people, then it can happen. If you can sell the idea to them. At the moment, I think there are a lot of people who are just clinging on to the hope of, I bet Dave King will give us 30 million or A and other will give us, and I don't think that's going to happen. I don't want it to either, to be honest, because I don't want it to be a rich man's plaything. I want it to be a community club. Scottish football's changing. We're never going to win. Sorry, lads, but we're never going to win the Champions League. It's not what our league now has changed. Football's changed because of money. We need to be the best we can be for us. We need to be the best version of Rangers. And it's going to be different from your dad's Rangers. And I'm glad I got nine in a row. And I'm glad I got Sunas. And I'm very fortunate. And I feel for people who didn't. But let's at least make Rangers the best, most aware of our history and our heritage and proud of who we are and what we do for our community and what we represent and who we're all about. And let's let's be the best version of that that we can be and let's be, you know, proud of our club and our stadium and our heritage and our history. We can do that. And I think fan ownership, the more fans that, that support it, then the more likely it is to, to happen. Al Bundy Loyal, if you were chairman for a day, what would be the first thing you would implement? Uh, oh, God. Uh, the music would be changed um, immediately. Uh, I would take over the DJ, but I may be able to be talked into a more cultural halftime experience. We would hose opposition fans as they were going in. Um, fuck them. We would lambast the press as they went in like they could get in for free but they would run the gauntlet of it like like in a fight you know it would be like there'd be bricks and shit it would be like a sort of really fierce version of gladiators um as they were going into the stadium but all kidding aside no what, what would i do I'd, I'd immediately make the press relations different and i think i would be much more aimed at the fans rather than aimed at the fans through the media and I would like to just go direct to the fans. So that would that would be it. Uh oh and uh, obviously I would build a statue to Dan Egan, the greatest unsung history of Rangers history, uh greatest unsung hero of Rangers history. Four month, three trophies, and he didn't even have to play to help win them. So Dan Egan, always in my heart. Alan um, best band formation I'd go the Jams 1-2 or Queens 1-2-1 UB40's 4-3-4 is a bit dated although I love how they go again uh, well that's a difficult one Alan because you've kicked off there with the Jam one of my favourite band my wife's very favourite band of all time and you've then gone into two of the bands that I hate most in the whole world uh, Queen are everything I hate about fucking everything you know oh I'm going to take Bally to the masses why don't you just fuck off oh look at him he's such a great performer he can fuck off with that as well oh he's got an 8 octave I don't give a fuck right 3 minutes 2 choruses get to fuck and as for you before Jesus Christ white men playing reggae come on reggae itself right I'm not going to get into here because I'm going to sound like Scott but UB40's reggae Jesus fucking Christ um it sounds, I mean, it it has all the sort of soul to it of a packet of marmalade being spread over a Rivita. It's just not good at all. But my personal favourite band formation would be the traditional um, drummer, guitarist, bassist, singer. So 
four person Ramones R.E.M no we are with that Scott Franklin how come Scott spells his name with one T well technically he doesn't technically it was his parents in all fairness it's not that's not a Scott being wanky Scottism uh, I believe it's because it was to represent Scotland because Scott's mum is Scottish and Scott's dad uh, is Dutch obviously um, and Scott was born when and Al lived in the US for a number of years and was actually uh, uh, in the Navy the US Navy and Scott was born in the US although they were always coming back to Scotland so I think that that was Scott as in Scotland so that was probably the reason behind it he's not just being a wank I mean he is just a wank but that wasn't one of the reasons for it on a similar theme Blue Sky 54, did Scott really attend the Scouts or was it purely for pod banter? No, he really attended the Scouts, he genuinely did. We don't actually do stuff like that. We don't tend to do, um, I'll say this and you say that and it'll be funny. We don't discuss it. I mean, gen- I know we, we joke about it, but agenda is genuinely um, what we're talking about and I'll go right Saturday, this article, link to this player, thoughts for the rest of the month, sporting integrity, boom, right? I mean, that is pretty much it. But we will occasionally, for some of the skits, he said in air quotes, at the start of the, the show, I'll say, right, you say this, and you, but that's that's it. Um, during the actual pod, nah. The, the, as soon as the music plays, it's just us talking. Um, and we would, you know, we would never go, oh, I'll say that I did this and you say right now, because I think you guys would know. I think one of the reasons that the pod's successful is that it's real, it's authentic, it is what it is, you know. Um, we've never tried to present ourselves in a light that's that's not true, and I think you would see through it. Um, I, I think you guys would, would be able to go, no, nah, that, that's not them, that's inauthentic, that's characters that are playing and may exaggerate certain parts of it. You know, Mark might have killed slightly less than, than we make out, but there's no... Everything does tend to come a bit organically, and even the running jokes. And that I think that why that works is because the running jokes develop organically. They make us laugh, and that's why we want to do them again or why we bring it up. Whereas if we were just shoehorning stuff in, I think you guys would see through it and be like, nah, I'm not interested in that. So yes, he genuinely was a scout. And last one, jeez, oh, whew, that has been some some hour. I am I'm shattered actually. I, I don't like this. It's kind of this must be what it's like if you're a really talented footballer and the water carrier gets sent off. And even though you're you're really skillful, when you've got to do it all, you know it's just too much responsibility. So that that this is kind of what it's like. I'm miss, I'm missing my water carriers this evening, um, but. It'll make me appreciate them in a new light next week, I suppose. Uh, so, just before we get to it, I'll go through all the, the usual stuff. Just see if you've liked the show, if you've hated the show. If you hate the show, go easy on me, for Christ's sake. I was doing my best. I'm talking to a microphone for an hour. It's not easy. But uh, even so, you can get in touch with us. Just go to Heart and Hand, uh, the, the Rangers podcast, which is on Facebook. Just search for Heart and Hand, the Rangers podcast. Or I'm at Ibrox Rocks, and that's R O C K S. Scott's at Scott Hart Hand. Cammy's at Beat That Beat. And uh, if you want to give us any feedback, have a chat to us, give us ideas, future questions, all the rest of it, that's how you can do it. Um, I'd like to thank you all for sending your questions. I was again really surprised by the by the response, and. I hope you enjoy. I mean, I always enjoy talking to you, and. Uh, 
I might have talked a lot, a lot of Weddle, but it was at least honest and from the heart. So last question goes to Stevie. And he says, looking back on your time with the RST, what is your best and worst moments and would you do it all again? Um, worst moment was losing the debate with James Spears because I was on the phone and he was in the studio and I was in George Square uh, for an hour when he told me I'd be on for 10 minutes and I was freezing. People were shouting at me because I'd left a table for dinner. Uh, I'd get shouted at on the radio. It was, you know... Standing outside a restaurant, freezing, that was a pretty... And then the rest of the week, it was just abuse. It was even my mates going, holy shit, you you got your arse handed to you there. Um, and then the, the, the best moment would possibly be... Personally, would be then the next and the Friday when I insisted on being in and wiped my arse with them. Um, so that, that personally. But just the best moment would be when people would come up and say thanks Dave I appreciate what you're doing and uh, I've joined the trust because then it was getting them to, to sort of think slightly differently and maybe be less passive about being a supporter and, and think I think we lost at some point and I know I did my generation did and I was lucky to rediscover it I think we lost that understanding of community and I think it was deliberate from Murray I was going to say from the men who run the club from Murray that he didn't want he wanted us to be customers he didn't want us to be supporters so he severed the cord but we let him and we became very passive and we sat back and we said well okay we are consumers and we just come here and we consume and entertain us and it stopped being about this is who I am, you know, this is such a part of my soul, this is something I intend to hand over to my kids, this is something I discussed with my papa and something my dad and me share and we talk about going to, you know, when when there was silences after a funeral, somebody would talk about the football to break the silence and we could all just revel in how much we loved Rangers and things like that, I think we lost and although we had to go to hell and back to get it, I'm glad we did, in a way, and it is back now, and I see the connection that people have with their club, and that's why I don't mind arguments, why they don't really upset me, because at least people care, and the opposite of that, that would that that's when the club would be dead, when nobody cares about it, because I've said this before, the only thing that keeps our club great is us. And it'll never, never change. And would I do it all over again? Of course, you know. Get a chance to help Rangers. What would you do? I mean, I'm on my second wife, but I'm still in my only football club. Talk to you again this time next week. Cheers. Bye. Podcast Network.